This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. did get our monthly check on the labor force. American wages unexpectedly climbing in August by the most since the recession ended in 09. Hiring rose by more than forecast, and that may keep the Fed on track to lift rates this month and maybe even make another hike come December. Let's get into this with Chris Liu, back with us, senior fellow at University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. Also here, Lara Rame, Chief U.S. Economist at FS Investments, based in Philly, in our New York studio. Hey, Chris, let me start with you. This report, a good one? Yeah, a good one. You know, especially at this point in uh, the recovery. Uh, you know, anytime you have a number that starts with a two, we were at 201,000, that's a good thing. And obviously the wage gains were a little bit of a surprise. Um, I, I want to see more than one month, and I obviously want to see what happens with inflation. But no, anytime wages go up and we're creating jobs uh, is a good thing. But obviously the president's uh, potential announcement about tariffs with China might cause a bit of a headwind into this recovery. Larry, you agree? How do you see it? Yeah. I, I mean, I, especially on the wage number, I mean, we have been faked out by this series more than I can say over the last several years. It's a real genuine conundrum. We've been expecting wages to rise. We know that the unemployment rate is significantly far below where the Fed estimates sort of that natural or like, mm-hmm. you know, potential equilibrium level to be. Um, so either the labor market's really tight and nobody's able to harvest uh, wage gains out of this, which may be true, but when does it change? Is it going to change? At some point, you run out of bodies, and we're all expecting wages to rise. It's not happening. Well, I think about the fascinating c- conversation, Jason, you and I had with Alan Kruger over at Princeton uh, at the U.S. Open last week, and he recently presented something to uh, Jackson Hole and, and all of the Fed officials, but basically saying some of the reasons why you're not seeing wage increases is because of you know agreements that you have as an employee, whether you're working at a distribution center in Amazon, or was it a subway shop? Like It's just unbelievable. Right. Jersey Mike's, I believe. <laughs> Jersey Mike's. A non-compete at Jersey Mike's. Chris, I mean, non-competes, I mean, how how have things changed within the workforce that's really kind of pushing down the worker and wages specifically? Well, look, I never disagree with my uh, my friend Alan Kruger, <laughs> but Alan's entirely right on this. When you've got um, fast food restaurants which have non-compete agreements uh, for their line employees, I mean, that's actually kind of incredible um, in terms of what that does. And, you know, People will get more wages. Uh, will get more wages, but they need to be able to switch jobs. And if you can't switch jobs, that's a problem. Uh, another issue here, in the, you know, probably the one um, down point in today's numbers is labor force participation, um, which fell to 62.7. Again, we've been kind of trending between 62 and 63 percent, really, for the last four or five years. And again, at this point in the recovery with jobs, uh, with the job market the way it is, you'd think you'd be seeing people coming off the sidelines. And they're not. And, and maybe they're not because wages aren't enough. Or maybe as we continue to talk about, there's just a shift in where our economy is right now. So, Lara, what's worrisome for an investor looking at this at this point? Because the markets obviously didn't greet this with open arms. It's also hard to extricate at this point in the day, especially at this point in trading, 
what's about trade and what's about jobs. But how do you look at it from an investment perspective? So from the investment perspective, the fascinating trend is this difference between the signals that the equity market's putting off, you know, record highs, valuations are still historically so high, strong earnings, and the bond market, right, which is telling us that um, these numbers aren't anything to get excited about. Really, there's no inflationary impulse coming whatsoever. And by the way, yield curve might invert and send us all a signal that we could be nearing the end of this it's mature expansion. It's hard to expansion. reconcile those right. two. And, and I think, two you know, stories. yeah, for the investor, you know, especially for all of these, I mean, investors, you know, you talk, you have your hedge funds guys, which are going to figure it out one way or the other. And then you have your mom and pop investors who are just trying to figure out, you know, they got a million dollars in the bank. How do they grow this? How do they get you know, income off of this, that's where the low interest rates are still biting. After all this time, after seven Fed rate hikes, you know, two more probably this year, you're just not seeing it in long-term interest rates. And I think that's the issue. And so, Chris, if you're sitting inside the Fed today and looking at these numbers, putting this and synthesizing it with everything else you're seeing, how does it make you feel about, obviously, a rate hike coming up this month, but how does it make you feel about December in your estimation? Well, look, I think this will keep the Fed on track for the series of uh, rate hikes that they've been planning along the way. Um, and again, the Fed, like everybody else, um, looks at longer-term trends, is not going to be guided by simply uh, one month sure. of wage growth numbers. Um, but I think going long-term, you do have a sense when you look at both the job market, when you look at the equity markets, that we may be sort of getting towards the tail end of this recovery. The, the only question now is what that precipitating event is that causes a reevaluation, and it may very well be tariffs against China. Or I wonder, Lara, how does what's going on in emerging markets kind of factor into all of this and what the Fed may or may not do? You know, so far, emerging markets have had only sort of these um, temporary bouts of volatility that are pushing into our market. But to me, it's all a symptom of what happens when we start to withdraw liquidity. You know, you start to see it in the emerging market space. It's not a coincidence that we're getting these Isol- seemingly isolated, um, you know, effects from wide a variety of markets. It's because liquidity is coming out. You know, the ECB is coming up. Um, you know, seeing mm-hmm. when they decide to back off of their quantitative easing policy. Um, you know, and then also these these other central banks, the UK, uh, Riksbank, all of these places around the world that have just been fueling this equity markets with liquidity, and it's now coming out. And I think over time, it's not the top of the U.S. consumers list. They've no. got jobs. Right. You know, confidence is high. But the question is when sort of a list of bad news starts getting to be a, a reason to question purchasing a new couch. You mentioned the ECB, too. Draghi scene pressing ahead with 2019 rate hike despite risks. We got that headline early this morning. Lara Rehm, thank you, thank you. Thanks. Nice to have you back. Chief U.S. Economist at FS Investments based in Philadelphia in our New York studio. Always good to talk to with uh, Chris Liu, Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, and of course, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. So, speaking 
of driving, it feels like the wheels are coming off a bit when it comes to Tesla, or more accurately, maybe the company's CEO. Investors pushing the stock down again today on a flurry of headlines. Dana Hull is technology reporter at Bloomberg News, our go-to person when it comes to Elon and Tesla. She's with us from our San Francisco bureau. And uh, also with us, an investor who has been shorting Tesla shares, John Thompson, back with us, CEO and chief investment officer at Vilas Capital Management in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York. Uh, Dana, let me start with you. Um, Are the wheels coming off uh, at Tesla? Well, today has certainly been an extraordinary day. Um, I mean, first, last night, you had Musk go on the Joe Rogan Show, which is this wildly popular podcast and YouTube channel where he talked about all kinds of things and then, like, took a toke of some kind of marijuana blunt, which... You know, it's marijuana is legal in California, but maybe not the best optics for a CEO at this juncture. And then this morning before the market opened, Tesla released an 8K that announced that Dave Morton, their chief accounting officer, had left the company. Morton had only been there for like a month. And then later we confirmed that Gabby Toledano, who's the chief HR person, uh, she's been on a leave of absence. She confirmed that she's not planning to come back. So you just have like this triple whammy. And, you know, I think people want stability and they want the focus to be on is the company making cars? Do customers love their cars? Is, are, yeah. is the quality good? And just all this like personal drama about his his behavior and the executive departure narrative is not helpful. John, I'm assuming, John, that you're saying, I, I was expecting kind of all of this, or to some extent, something to start to kind of unravel. Yeah, I mean, this is, is that fair? Well, this is the fourth accounting person to quit Tesla in the last 18 months, the third in the last eight months. Um, you know, going back, the CFO of Tesla, the current CFO, retired. They brought in a new guy from Google to be the CFO. He lasted 14 months, resigned. They brought the old guy back because apparently he was the only one in the country that could figure out their accounting. And so now he's had three people underneath him quit in the last eight months. In my opinion, there's something going on that's very material. And uh, along with all the other stuff that's been going on with the tweeting and the insider trading that I think Elon Musk did uh, by buying stock in May and June, when he said, I'm in discussions with the Saudis later Mm -hmm. to buy the company out. Well, that's insider trading. And so there's a whole lot of stuff going on here. I think that, you know, the... SEC has got to be dealing with currently. So, Dana, as you talk to people, let's talk specifically about that uh, accounting issue, because obviously that's something that, as John, who is an investor uh, on the short side, just pointed out, that is of material interest beyond, you know, construction or manufacturing. You know, the numbers obviously are extremely important. What is going on from what you can tell as it relates to that piece of the business? Well, there's a lot of speculation about – I mean, there's a lot of speculation of why did Morton quit, right? I mean, did he quit because he was brought in to take Tesla private and he mm. didn't like the way that Musk went about it? Or, um, you know, or did he, did he look at the books and think, oh, my God, I've got to run away here? I mean, and no one really knows why he left. We, I have not been able to reach him today, although I certainly have tried. And, Dave, if you're out there, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, when you have a company that has a market cap as high as Tesla's that is, you know, trying to disrupt not the not just the auto industry but also the energy markets. I mean, to lose all these finance 
finance people one after the other. It's just really, it's just not good. I mean, it's, you know, you need steady leadership in finance. And there have been a lot of questions about how Tesla, you know, counts deliveries, how they account for customer deposits. I mean, every, every, every earnings call, people are always pouring over those numbers. I mean, just this week you had Musk tweet out a favorable report from Inside EVs about Tesla sales. And this is a company that doesn't even report sales on a monthly basis. So then, you know, it's like, what was that about? He tweeted this out knowing that Dave was actually leaving because apparently Dave Morton um, tendered his resignation on Tuesday. We're just now finding out today. John, come on in. Well, you know, I just think it's this pattern of uh, people getting into the books and the inner accounting of of Tesla, finding out what's going on and doing this trade-off in their head of, well, if I stay, I could make some money, but if I stay, I could go to jail. <laughs> and I think that's their trade-off. And they're saying, I want to spend time with my family. They can't publicly say what's going on because they sign these confidentiality agreements, kind of like what Theranos made their employees do. And so I, I think there's this, there's something going on. And apparently in the last eight months, there's been zero insider sales. Hmm. So n- no employee has sold shares of Tesla for a company of this size, that's a very material thing. To So they must have a, some sort of ban, and there's material information inside that they know that no one else knows. So I, I, there's, there's a rat. So, Dana, give us the broader perspective, especially feathering in some of the other executive departures. You know this company better than anyone. How is it? How is it shaping up at this moment, given all of the drama? I mean, should investors be worried about other shoes to drop? What, what's, the, what's the inside dish here? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at Tesla's leadership now, and we, you know, Tesla doesn't even have like an org chart anywhere. So we made our own, um, which is accurate, but we keep having to update it because more people are leaving. But if you look at the org chart now, most of the leadership at Tesla is relatively new. The, the sort of old guard, the people that are like Tesla DNA, I mean, it's very few people. You're down to like JB, the CTO, Deepak, who's sort of on his second tour of duty as the CFO, and Franz, the designer, but everybody else in manufacturing and engineering. All the like old timers, they're all gone. So it's like it's a it's a company where the leadership is relatively new. The old guard has left, and there's not a COO. And I think that that is what a lot of customers and fans and investors really want to see at this point is like a clear number two. I mean, what is the secession plan if like mm-hmm. if if something happens to Elon or you know I mean there is none. There's no there's no clear number two. It's it's very different than the than at SpaceX where you have a dynamite COO and number two and Gwen Shotwell. Right. There's been a you know a, a report yesterday apparently by um, Fox News that uh, they're close to settling with the SEC over the tweeting of the buyout. I find that hard to believe given all this information coming out, like with all the accounting, people quitting. I mean, you would think the SEC is going to be looking at this for a lot longer and a lot deeper. And, uh, you know, so I, I think there's a lot more news to come. You've been shorting it. I'm assuming you still are. Yes. Have you been doubling down on those shorts or? Yes. Okay. I know it's been a hard trade for you for a long time. We actually have kind of, it was bouncing around a yeah. break even, but, uh, you know, now we're starting to make money. And I think, I think the, the, the problem is, is the lower the stock goes, the, the more they get cut off from financing. Right. 
and they have a whole lot of debt coming due in the next couple of years, and they're, they're going to go broke. Right, and something I know we've talked about with Dana in terms of uh, what kind of, you know, people have talked about needing a cash raise of some sort, and it's not going to be uh, certainly an easy thing for them to do at this point. John Thompson, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer at Vilas Capital Management in our New York studio. Dana Hall, thank you. Technology reporter at Bloomberg News out there in our bureau in San Francisco. Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Master, Jason Kelly right here on Bloomberg Radio. They do. They smile in your face. All the time they want to take your place to backstab us. Well, as we say around this time every week about Washington, what a week. And to help us make sense of it all, we turn to Justin Sink. He is a White House correspondent for Bloomberg, joining us from our Washington bureau. Justin, I don't even know where to start, so let's start where people seem to be spending the most time, certainly the president seems to be spending the most time, which is reacting to this one-two punch of the Woodward book excerpts coming out and then the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. What's the state of play here? Yeah, I mean, I think what's most interesting about both the op-ed and the Woodward book is that they were more evidence of sort of disloyalty among the president's top aides. So if you're President Trump and you're looking at uh, a book, you know, with which many of the people that you're, you're working with every day in the West Wing and who you have worked with and got jobs for in the administration are coming out and not only trashing your leadership, but saying that they're actively uh, looking to undermine some of the policy goals that you're you're seeking. And then you add that to this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times, which is obviously a paper that, that the president both, you know, woes and reveres. It, it comes together to sort of create this climate where the president doesn't quite know who he can trust, who is actually working to help support him. And I think that that has fed what we've seen, you know, very clear frustration and anger from him on the campaign trail, on Twitter. Uh, he can't seem to let either of these topics go. Frustration that, that continues to come out as our colleagues are reporting, you know, on Air Force One this afternoon as he is moving around, as you say, campaigning. Uh, he he keeps coming back to this. It's obviously uh, something that's very much front of mind. Yeah, and I, I think what is a frustration for him is that uh, people seem to believe these accounts, even as, you know, top administration officials are denying some of the anecdotes that, that, that were in the book or the sort of thrust of the editorial. And so for the president, who has really um, struggled to sell his message, particularly on the economy, that that things are going well, that his leadership style is, is – uh, having dividends, this has been a, a real frustration. Justin, any thought into why this week? So we had the Bob Woodward book come out, and we thought that was going to be kind of the big news when it comes to the president this week, at least about what's going on in the White House. And then, bam, you have that uh, anonymous op-ed in the New York Times uh, by you know a senior administration official. Is it, it why now? Well, I mean, I think one funny thing about this administration is that although this is certainly uh, the flavor of the week and, and what is currently causing a lot of consternation for the president, this is part of a repeated cycle and, and why these uh, revelations seem to have more and more credibility and impact. So if it wasn't 
the Bob Woodward book or this New York Times op-ed. It would be the Omarosa book a, a couple weeks before that or the Fire and Fury book by Michael Wolff that came out earlier in the year. The president even sort of addressed this and said, you know, that he kind of likes the, the uh, combating these and going back and forth. But the fact that he hasn't been able to stop tweeting about it, to stop bringing it up during his speeches is evidence that it's, it's certainly weighing on his mind. And, and we can't uh, not talk about the various other things that have been happening in Washington this week, not the least of which is a Supreme Court nominee up there on Capitol Hill. You also had big executives from the tech community testifying on Capitol Hill, and you also have ongoing trade negotiations. So synthesize all of this for us. Where is the administration's focus beyond uh, the the disloyalty uh, that the president is feeling right now? Well, I think uh, the White House has always said that the Supreme Court is one area where they feel like they've had great success before already getting one uh, justice confirmed and Brett Kavanaugh looking this week as if he's he's sort of on track. And so that's, you know, something that is going to affect the makeup of the court potentially for decades and, and really be one of a, a key legacy point for, for the president. So there's certainly a focus on that and, of course, also on trade, as you mentioned uh, the comment period on additional tariffs towards China just ended. Uh, the president told our colleagues on Air Force One earlier today that, that he's considering even more tariffs against China. And so, uh, you know, the president, I think, has been frustrated uh, with an inability to convert this kind of back-and-forth trade war into tangible gains, particularly when it comes to China. And so that's something that they are eagerly focused on right now. What's difference internally within the White House right now? I think there's there is a lot of frustration, particularly after the op-ed, of um, a sense of of disloyalty of not having everybody working on the same team. We saw Sarah Sanders um, tweet yesterday asking reporters to stop asking about this issue, but but that's something that obviously is not going to happen, and particularly not going to happen when the president is, is tweeting about it. And so, mm. you know, that's evidence of this. Uh, of the sort of mood over there. But this is also something, of course, that they've lived through before. Justin Sink, White House correspondent for Bloomberg, joining us from our bureau in the nation's capital. I would say enjoy your weekend, but you guys are working 24-7 down there. We really appreciate uh, all the context. Carol, uh, again, what a week, but we say it every week. Yeah, but this really was what a week. Anyway, we'll see what uh, happens uh, as we get into uh, another week of September. It's just early in the fall. Not even fall yet, everybody. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Messer, Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
All right. Well, Carol, you know what it takes to get me excited on a Friday afternoon? You know, sort of sleepy into into the weekend. Not a glass of wine. Okay. A Georgetown Hoya. Oh, yes. Who works in private equity. That's all it takes. <laughs> score, That's all it takes. I'm score. a simple man. I'm a simple man. <laughs> well, you got one. I got one right here with us in our studio. Brian Gilday. He is managing director and global head of investments at Hamilton Lane, based right outside of Philadelphia, here with us in Manhattan. Brian, great to be with you. So we hear so much about private equity and all the opportunities, but also the challenges, especially in light of all these trade war headlines that we keep getting. So give us some context here. What should we be thinking about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, So trade wars are a topic that is on people's minds today. Um, So obviously it's in the news frequently. Investors are talking about it. Our clients are some of the most sophisticated institutions globally. Um, and actually, the managers are really thinking about it quite a bit, too. So we recently did a survey of 100 managers globally talking about their concerns for 2018 at the macro level. And the number one concern was trade wars. So hmm. it's certainly top of mind for investors. That's interesting. All right. So what do you guys tell them about well, what this might be in terms of financial markets and financial a- assets? Sure. So th- I think there's really uh, two scenarios here. One is the today scenario, which is – and I speak of today knowing that it's moving very quickly. Um, but the, today, the this minute scenario. This minute, yeah. exactly. this minute. Who knows what will be next minute. Um, but this minute, the, the impact of the tariffs should be v- relatively small, right? It's very selective. So for sure there will be individual companies or industries that are impacted by it. But in the overall picture of things, it's a really small percentage of trade, so it shouldn't be that big. Of course, the scenario that everyone worries about is the potential tomorrow scenario with really unknown implications. And I think what that generally means in the financial markets, as you know better than I do, is volatility and uncertainty. And that's really what the private markets love. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that seems to come up too, and and you know the space better than I, is and we were we were actually joking earlier. I was recalling a line uh, of Henry Kravis's about, "Don't congratulate me when I buy a company, you know, congratulate me when I sell it." I have to think some of the some investors have to be worried about. Okay, there's a lot of private equity deals to be done now. But what's the future hold? Does the M&A market get a little trickier? Does the world essentially get less globalized and therefore sort of shrink the opportunity set on the exit side? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the real benefits of private equity is that long-term patient capital yeah. element. So uh, the the investors, the managers have the ability to really wait for the right time, right? wait for the right exit environment, position the companies to exit. So um, for sure, there are concerns about what the world could look like tomorrow. But in the interim, the managers have a lot of tools at their disposal to make business improvements, and they're really aligned to be able to do that. Well, because – and Carol and I have talked about this a lot. Certainly money is not uh, shying away from new private equity funds. We were talking about KKR. We were talking about KKR's new uh, infrastructure fund, you know, raising seven-plus billion dollars. Give us a sense of the money flowing into private equity funds at this point. You guys are invested in a lot of them. Sure, yeah. So it's been a good time uh, to be a private equity asset manager. Uh, Investors are allocating more money to the asset class. The performance has been very good, uh, which is a big reason for that. I think the other thing you're really seeing is the number of strategies really expanding. So it's giving investors more choice in terms of how they can invest in the private markets. For instance, what? Uh, Well, in terms of things like real assets and credit, private credit, as you Mm -hmm. know, has been a big theme. The growth equity, the venture space are continuing to expand. All those areas are really growing. So let me ask you, private credit is a really interesting place to 
to stop for a second in part because next week we will be officially 10 years on from the launch of the financial crisis, you know, the anniversary of Lehman uh, declaring bankruptcy. I mean, private equity and private capital have ultimately been some of the biggest winners in this post-crisis world. I think about the amount of assets that have flowed to the Blackstones, the Carlisles on the private equity side, BlackRock obviously more on the public side. Is that a secular change in terms of the money flowing and the power that the private side has versus maybe some of the traditional bulge bracket? We, we think so, yes. So um, you're right, and the capital has continued to flow into the asset class. It's grown overall. Uh, the performance piece is important. We think as people understand the risk characteristics as well, a lot of those are misunderstood. So as data gets better and there's more experience there, we we expect to continue to see the private markets to grow overall. The risk characteristics in what sense? In, 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 how, sure, how in so? terms of volatility okay. or dispersion of returns, one of the challenges with the private markets is there's no data or analytics. It's, right. it's really lacking compared to the public markets. And when you have the data, it actually tends to tell a pretty good story. And so the more that there is, we believe that will continue to fuel the growth of the asset class. In terms of investors who are interested, are you seeing a growth in any certain group in particular, whether it's pension funds, whether it's family offices? I'm just curious. It's, it really is across the board, it across is. all geographies, across all types of investors, um, becoming more aware of the private markets and the characteristics and being interested in investing for that return element. And do you still see this trend toward direct investing on the part of some of the big institutions? I know that seemed to be kind of the flavor of the month, or the flavor of the year a couple years back. Has that continued? Are you still seeing that appetite? Yes, it is, it is continuing. So those institutions are doing more of it. They're setting up their business models around that. Um, so that is certainly a trend we see continuing as well. Brian, just have 30 seconds left here. Based on what you're seeing, what does it tell you about maybe the market environment more broadly, or does it tell you anything? Uh, we, you know, so we obviously we track a number of indicators and market sentiments and things like that. And, and we feel pretty good about where the asset class stands today. So uh, the returns have been good. The fundraising has been good. But the indicators of deploying capital and the types of returns investors continue to get out of the asset class has also been positive. So hmm. um, we continue to believe it's a good environment for the asset class. Brian Gilday, Managing Director, Global Head of Investments for Hamilton Lane, based outside of Philly, up here with us in our Bloomberg 11.3 studio. More than $470 billion under management. Georgetown and private equity. Brian, you have so made his it day. Is like, it I is the score of the week. You are listening <laughs> to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.